and holy word, please open it up to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we're going to be starting a new uh, series this morning in the book of Exodus. Thank you, kids, for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, yeah, give them a round of applause. They did a great job. All right. Exodus chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses uh, chapters 1 and 2 this morning. It's going to be a little bit different today and probably throughout the series because we typically have been reading Scripture together uh, when we look at a message, but because we're going to be taking the entire 40 chapters of Exodus in about 15 weeks, uh, that makes for really long verses to read together. And so I'm just going to be highlighting things as we go. So I just wanted to prepare you uh, for that. I will just read the passages when they come up. But you know, uh, before we start anything, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we ask that, that you would now illuminate our hearts and our minds to see wondrous things out of your law. God, would you help our, our spirits to be lifted up? Would we be encouraged, uh, regardless of where we are right now, whether times are tough or whether things are going really well? Lord, I pray that Christ would be honored and glorified in, in, um, in this time. And it's in uh, Christ's mighty name that I pray this. Amen. Well, have you ever had uh, a vacation or maybe an experience that you were uh, just really had a lot of expectations for, and then when it happened, you were just kind of, eh. Well, psychiatrists call this the, the Paris effect. It, is a, uh, it simply means the disappointment that many first-time visitors experience after hyped-up expectations um, of, uh, from the media. A recent uh, article in the Wall Street Journal explained that it was Dr. Hiroki Oda, a Japanese psychiatrist working in France who first identified the, the symptoms in 1980s, which often affects women uh, who arrive expecting an affluent and friendly European capital where slim, beautiful Parisians walk around smelling of Chanel. And so when the article went on to note that many uh, Japanese and now Chinese visitors, they expect a place that is full of romance, uh, full of beauty, full of wealth and extravagance. And, and, and instead, what they find are pavements that are littered with cigarette butts and aggravated commuters and packed metro vehicles and and for some, the shock is too much to bear, and it prompts them to seek medical help for symptoms uh, that may include irritability, fear, uh, obsession, uh, depressed mood, insomnia, and the feeling of and the feeling of persecution by the French. Um, in extreme cases, the only remedy is a one-way ticket out of Paris. In other words. Disappointment sets in when they visualize what it would or should be in their minds, and then they see what reality actually brings. You know, to expect great things from vacations is one thing. Uh, but what about the pressure that we face every day with our expectations? 
Uh, Christian author Michael Horton once wrote that today we feel pressure to have our weddings look like the cover of bridal magazines or movie set. Our marriages have to be made in heaven, even though we're very much on earth. Our presentations at work have to dazzle. Our kids have to make the dean's list in order to get into the best graduate schools. Nothing short of brilliant and groundbreaking will satisfy if you want a good job. When we do stop smelling the roses, it has to be an unforgettable package at an amazing resort. It's not enough to enjoy recreation at the public park, but extreme sports are really what interest us. It's safe to say that many of our problems in day-to-day life stem from disappointments, from unrealistic expectations. Uh, Whether they're simply unrealized or maybe they're unrealistic, our expectations can actually lead us into disillusionment. Uh, This is no more seen when when we think about how we expect life to go. We we feel like if if we do all the right things and perhaps try to avoid avoid dark days, um, those things still inevitably come. The diagnoses, the bad news, the major letdowns, the, the, the losses uh, remind us how easily our expectations can come crashing down. And when uh, we place all of our expectations on the things of this world, inevitably we will be let down. But when we look to God, there are things about Him in which we can expect and never be let down. And such is the case in the beginning of Exodus. God's people are in a very, very difficult place. And yet, because of his promises, uh, his people can expect that he will always come through. So the big idea that we need to see today is that even in the midst of dark and troubling times, God is working for the good of his people. And there are three ways in which we see this. The first is that we should and can expect God to keep His promises during dark days. There's a few things that we can see uh, within that point. The first thing that we need to realize is that God's promises will always be a problem for those who reject Him. God's promises will always be a problem for those who reject him. Exodus is is the second chapter in in God's story here, in the story of God's people. It comes right after Genesis. And if you remember the book of Genesis, there's a lot of things that happen. Creation of the universe, uh, the fall of mankind, the the great uh, Noahic flood, the, uh, the scene at the Tower of Babylon. And then we meet this guy named Abraham. And God zeroes in on Abraham and gives him this great promise, what we would call a covenant, that all the peoples would be blessed through Abraham. And not only would he become a great nation, but he also promised them a land, what we would call the promised land, the land of Israel. And verse 7, verses 1 through 7, we see the the promise of people being fulfilled, but not the land. Let's look in verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. 
Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So you see, God's promise is half fulfilled here so far. There's an exceeding number of people, but they're not yet in a land. And they are in Egypt. And so the question is, how did they get there? Why are they not in the promised land? Well, the answer there is we see uh, uh, Moses, who is writing Exodus, write about this guy named Joseph. And in Joseph's story, Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob, who is Abraham's, uh, great, uh, Abraham's grandchild. He is the favored son out of 11 of them at the time. And because he is the favored son, he receives really cruel treatment from his brothers. His brothers end up throwing him into a pit. They sell him into slavery. Uh, but in his slavery, God still blesses him. And through a series of events, Joseph becomes basically the prime minister of all of Egypt. He saved Egypt and all the ancient Near East from, from a famine. And he ends up reuniting with his family. And everything becomes right and good. You can read uh, about this in Genesis 37 through 50. And for whatever reason, they end up staying in Egypt. And the text will later tell us that they've been here for four hundred years. And God's promise has continued to be fulfilled in the increasing of his people. Now look in verse 8 because here's where we see the problem. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So here's this new pharaoh. And rather than seeing God's promise as a blessing, he sees it as a threat and this is seen throughout history. You look in the New Testament, and God is blessing his church, and immediately there's a threat to the Jewish community. Seems that there's this new faith that's trying to change things, make things uh, get stirred up a little bit, and the Jewish community is not happy with that. And as the, the church progresses and gets larger and larger and keeps spreading, it ends up affecting the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire has an all-out persecution of God's people. We see this again in the Reformation when the, when the Protestant ideas start coming up that people are burned at the stake for just translating the Bible into different languages for the common people. This is a pattern that we see even in the world today. You see in communist states, the idea of Christianity is not well tolerated because it subverts the state. In other countries where there's Sharia law, which is the Muslim law, Christianity is not tolerated because it is a threat. There are many places in America now where being a Christian is, is the new cultural sin. Anytime a government is given superior status, God's people will always be given an inferior status. And God and His will and His ways will always be offensive and a threat to those who dislike God. And when there's a threat, notice the second thing here, that God's promises will always bring hostility against God's people. God's promises will bring hostility against God's people because threat often produces fear. And fear usually brings hostility. And as typically the case, the more hostility towards God's people, the more God blesses 
his people. Look with me in verses 9 through 12. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So, uh, the more God works, the more fearful the Egyptians become. Now, look in verses 13 and 14. We've seen intensification. So, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So what did God's blessing bring to God's people? Slavery. And look at all the different ways that God's uh, blessing brought slavery to God's people. First, in political slavery. Here are a group of immigrants that don't belong in Egypt. There, are, there is uh, discrimination against them. There is no political freedom, but also look at the economic uh, slavery they have here. They are into forced slave labor, and notice that it is enough to keep them busy and not end up organizing a rebellion, and slavery still exists today. We see this all, if you, if you pay attention to the news, that human trafficking is still a major issue in our world. Young girls, uh, well, really any women, being sold off as sex slaves. It's happening today. Thankfully, many in the church are, are, are rising up to help uh, this uh, slavery get eradicated. But also, slavery throughout the world still exists. There was a book I read a few years ago called The Emancipation of Robert Sadler that explained how he was a slave in the South, not before the Civil War, but in the mid-1900s, these things still happen today. People of power continue to exploit the weak. We see this also in the gambling industry, whether it's the lottery or whether it is sports gambling or whether it is uh, casinos. These are industries that are created to prey on the poor and the weak. It is a form of economic slavery. But not only is there economic slavery, but there's also social slavery. Notice here that the Egyptians end up putting a state-sponsored genocide on the Israelites. Look in verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. And so here he gives this edict to kill these babies. And when that doesn't work, look in verse 22. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Do you get that? They're still bearing boys. So now openly, when you see a baby boy, just toss him into the river. And today, international genocide is still going on. In America, there's, there's a, a silent genocide going on where 3,700 babies per day are being aborted. And outside of that, God's people continue to face social pressure as well. Court cases where cake bakers can't do their job according to their conscience. Photographers doing the same thing. Businesses. Churches are even under pressure these days. But notice there's also spiritual slavery here. God's people are not able to worship. And what we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus here is that by putting Israel under this intense slavery, what is happening to them is a psychology of oppression. The biggest part of Exodus is not getting God's people out of Egypt. It is getting Egypt out of God's people because they will end up figuring that even though they are oppressed, even though they are in enslavement, at least they have their basic needs met. At least they have food. At least they have water. At least they have a place to sleep. The oppression makes them question God, and when they leave that slavery, it will lead them to turn their backs on Him. And it's, this is the mindset that we live with every single day, living in a spiritual Egypt. Prior to Christ, we live in the bondage to sin, and after being delivered from our sin through Christ, we still seek to return to our sin. It's a vicious cycle. Well, what can we apply to this point? We can apply the fact that we can expect hostility. We can expect, as Jesus said, that we will be persecuted. Paul said that through many trials and tribulations, we must inherit eternal life. But on the converse side of that, we can expect God to keep his promises to his people, to never leave us and never forsake us, and after all the exodus and after all of God's people leave, we see in Joshua 21, verse 45, this is what, uh, what it writes. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. This is God's plan for you. That all of God's words and all of God's will will come to pass in your life through Jesus Christ. God will keep His promise, and He will often do it in unexpected ways. He first did it here in chapter 1 through Hebrew midwives who decided to disobey the edict of Pharaoh. And also, the most unexpected way that God worked here, perhaps, is through the birth of a baby. And that's our second point here 
is that we should expect God to keep His promises through a Redeemer. Expect God to keep His promises through a Redeemer. Uh, there, there was one time uh, when I was in, in Paris, and uh, we were doing sort of a tour at night of, uh, of the city, and we decided to see this one church that's called the Sacre Coeur. And you can't necessarily get there from the bus that we were in. And so the bus driver decided that the best place to drop us off is right outside the Moulin Rouge. And if you know geography of Paris at all, Moulin Rouge is right in the heart of the red light district of Paris. And this is at night. We have no clue where we're going. We're going through back alleys. Finally, we see the Sacre Coeur. It's this beautiful sight. We see this whole city line of Paris. It's wonderful. And after we're done, we thought... How do we get home? We didn't know how to get home. The bus was gone. We're in the middle of the city where we don't speak the language. And these two guys from our group, the last people you would ever trust with your life, say, oh, we know the way home. We walked home this way earlier today. And we're thinking, you've got to be crazy. We're going to follow these two guys home in the middle of Paris, in the middle of the night. And they take us through back alleys, through side streets that, you know, you think about in movies and in the news. We don't know where in the world we're going. Lo and behold, as I'm about to get, give up and say, we're lost, I look up. And there is our hotel. These guys navigated. The last person, the people that you would expect to lead Home, they got us there. God had prepared these two guys earlier in the day to get us home in that dark night. And God often uses the most unlikely people and prepares them to be his agents of hope. This is a principle that we should always understand, that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. And in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 22, we find the beginning of God's call on a man's life who wasn't the most expected of candidates, uh, but because of God's sovereignty, he was put in the right place at the right time for the right job. And notice here, uh, in chapters 2, 1 through 10, uh, he's gonna go from the, God, God's going to go from the large group of Israel and focus on one family. Look with me in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife as a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of, of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds in the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe beside the river, uh, at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, uh, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, "'This is one of the Hebrews' children.'" Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So under Pharaoh's edict to take babies, baby boys and throw them in the river, we have a mom here that hides her child for three months. And at the end of three months, she, she brings her baby to uh, the river. And notice that she obeys the law here. She doesn't follow the spirit of the law, but she does follow the, the letter. She makes a, a, a basket for him. There are no coincidences here. We ought to see the providential hand of God. The baby's mother trusted God by placing her and placing him in a little boat. And just as a side note, the word for the, the boat here that she puts him in is the exact same word that's used in Genesis for the ark. And it ought to relate to the reader who is reading this for the first time to see this as God's preparation of salvation for his people. He's up to something redemptive. And though Pharaoh meant for the river to be an instrument of death, God meant for the river to be an instrument of life. And perhaps not ironically, Moses is rescued by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. Where her father lacks compassion, she shows compassion. His sister Miriam is watching this all unfold. And we ought to take heart here. Moses' family was one family living in an evil government. Many families had already lost baby boys. Moses' mother took a risk by placing him in a basket and not knowing what was going to happen to him. And God allows her to be his nurse. And then perhaps more tragically, she has to give him up to the enemy's daughter. Can you imagine what that would be like? And yet, God is behind all of this. You may be going through something right now, and maybe you're living by faith, and maybe you're not seeing much relief. You have no clue of what's going to happen. This text tells us today that there is nothing outside of God's eye. There's nothing too far out of His reach and His plan you may be going through the darkest days of your life, a crisis of faith, while God is unknowingly to you underscoring something greater. God in His sovereignty is behind what you're going through, even in our Failures. Look at how now God raises a failure. Forty years go by, and Moses has to make this decision. Who is he going to identify with? The Hebrews of his birth origin? 
Or is he going to identify with the Egyptians that he has grown up and been educated under and knows life? And his, in, his innate sense of justice seems to choose for him. He goes out, and the text says, to look on the burdens of his people. And he sees one particular Egyptian harshly treating one of the Hebrews, one of his people. And at that moment, Moses sees himself as a leader. He takes matters into his own hands, and he kills the Egyptian right there. Now, in Acts chapter 7, verse 25, uh, uh, Luke tells us that um, uh, Stephen quoted, was quoted by saying that Moses believed that at that time, God sent him to deliver his people. But the people weren't going to have it. So he hides the body. And then again, the next day, he tries to be a leader and resolve a conflict between two of his people. And they're on to him. They know what happened. The cat's out of the bag. Pharaoh knows it. Everyone knows it. So what does Moses do? He bails. He runs away, panics, and leaves towards out of Egypt towards Midian. And it doesn't take him long for his sense of justice to kick in again. He goes and he sees the daughter of the priest, the daughters of the priest getting bullied by these other shepherds. He steps in. This time he's successful. He gets uh, rewarded by being uh, married, uh, married to the priest's daughter, Zipporah. And it's here now in chapter 2, verse 22, that we're left with a a disappointment. Look in verse 22. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And you may say, how is that a letdown? It's a letdown because here is God's man that has been chosen, that he thinks that God has chosen him to be the one who would lead his people to freedom. He has failed, and now by saying that he has been a stranger in a strange land, past tense, Moses is settling down. He's giving up. He's starting a family. He is planting roots. He is going to stay in Midian. He's become a family man. I have been a stranger, a sojourner in a foreign land. I never really had an identity. I wasn't really a Hebrew. I really wasn't an Egyptian. I was rejected by both. I have no place there, but here in Midian, I have finally come home. And indeed, he has come home in a sense because he is in the land of promise. However, he is in this land without God's people. And God's people are in a foreign land without a shepherd. And here again we see a time in which God is seemingly not in the picture. Yet God is preparing His leader to deliver His people. And in the meantime, His people wait in their hardships not having a clue that God is working on their behalf. You know, oftentimes, we have to wait for God. 
Whatever darkness that we're facing, we pray, we groan, we endure, and yet it seems as though God is absent. Motier wrote this in his Exodus commentary. The book of Exodus makes us face the prevailing and continuing darkness, which is often part of our experience, while at the same time lifting the corner of the dark curtain to tell us that there is also another story going on that the people who walk in darkness are on their way to a great light. The Lord is in the process of bringing His people out of darkness. We always naturally want simple, quick solutions, instant coffee and spiritual reality. Occasionally, the Lord will satisfy that desire, but for the most part, He doesn't. And like the Exodus people, we face the demand for persevering in faithfulness and patience awaiting the coming day. We have to wait a lot. But thankfully, we don't have to wait like God's people of the Exodus because they were waiting for a Redeemer. We have been given the Redeemer, the one who has already come. Moses serves as a foreshadow of the ultimate Redeemer who would come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, like Moses, was born as a baby who was hunted down. Jesus' family, like Moses' family, had to work cunningly in order to preserve Him. But whereas Moses failed in leadership, Jesus never failed. When Jesus saw injustice, he was never premature in his actions. When danger showed up, Jesus never ran away. Jesus did not kill in order to make right, but rather Jesus was killed to make right. Taking upon himself the sin of the Egyptian and the argumentative Hebrew and taking upon himself every word, thought, and deed in sin of us. We'll see in Hebrews 3, this will come up a lot, but in Hebrews 3, the author writes this, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See, Jesus is the Redeemer that we hope in. Jesus is the one whom we can place not only all of our sin, but also our oppressive burdens that we face every single day. We all come.